Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lachlan Summers. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Mark Anderson, who has just written the book From Boaz to Black Power. Mark Anderson is an Associate Professor of Cultural Anthropology at UC Santa Cruz, where he is also the Chair of the Anthropology Department. He received his PhD from University of Texas at Austin and was a Harper Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Chicago. Alongside work and edited volumes, his work has been published in History and Anthropology, African and Black Diaspora, and the Journal of Latin American and Caribbean Anthropology, among several others. His first book, Black and Indigenous, Garifuna Activism and Consumer Culture in Honduras, was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2009. Here, Anderson examined the politics of race and culture among the Garifuna, highlighting the mutual entanglements between indigeneity and blackness and between diasporic affiliations and nativist attachments, in order to analyze the unstable and ambivalent modes of identification through which people represent themselves and negotiate oppression. Mark has kindly joined me today to discuss From Boaz to Black Power, Racism, Liberalism, and American Anthropology, published last year by Stanford University Press. Mark, thanks for coming. Oh, thank you, Lachlan. It's a, I'm flattered to be here. <laughs> uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz, where I've TA'd for Mark and taken classes under him, and I quickly became his favorite student of all time. Right, Mark? Of course. <laughs> okay, so I got that on the record, but we're here to discuss this book. But before we get started, uh, I want to know how are you at the moment, and, and what's the state of the pandemic where you're currently based? Oh, boy, I'm fine. I have a job. Um and a job that allows me to work from home. So I feel very fortunate. Um, we're in, you know, in Santa Cruz, uh, where the pandemic has not been as pervasive as some places. Um, but California is seeing an increase in cases. Um, so uh, we're just hanging in there, um, doing the best we can. Okay. Well, <laughs> I hope it gets better quickly. Uh, but I'm not entirely convinced that well. And, but anyway, uh, I want to hear uh, about your academic history, like where you went to school, uh, the colleagues you studied with, and the colleagues that you studied under. Uh, okay. Um, well, I was a undergraduate major at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where um, I was actually, or I, that's where I did my undergraduate degree. And um, I was a philosophy major, actually. Um, but the philosophy major didn't have many requirements, so it allowed me to explore um, other things than the liberal arts, humanities, social sciences, so anthropology, Latin American studies. Um, and then as a senior undergraduate student, um, well, before then, I, I became interested in Central America um, and had the opportunity to go to first Costa Rica and then Honduras. So decided I wanted to pursue anthropology and didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do work in Central America. I ended up going to the University of Texas at Austin, where my first year advisor was uh, Edmund Gordon, uh, Edmund T. Gordon, otherwise known as Ted Gordon, uh, who 
had spent a decade um, in Nicaragua working on Ted's uh, African-American. He was working with um, Afro-Nicaraguans or Creoles uh, on the Atlantic coast of Nicaragua. And within the context of the Sandinista Revolutionary Project in, in the 1980s. And so through his influence, I became interested in Afro-Central American peoples and the politics of race and culture in Central America. And that's what led me eventually to this work on Garifuna in, in Honduras. That is the very abbreviated version of the intellectual trajectory. Um, so, so how did this book emerge from this earlier work? So you, you did this uh, ethnographic study with the Garifuna and now a, a history of anthropology. How, how did these two works relate? Yeah, so as you gave a nice gloss on the first book, Black and Indigenous, uh, which was a book in which that it st- the project started as an exploration of Garifuna or a people of... African and indigenous ancestry who were really, whose ethnogenesis is, as a people emerged in the island of St. Vincent in the Caribbean after a series of conflicts with the British. The British deported them to Central America. They had been, Garifuna were, had long been of interest to anthropologists as a kind of unique cultural group. And there were lots of questions around, well, or culturally speaking, are the, is their culture more indigenous? Is it more African? origin, but there'd been very little work really looking at the relationship between Garifuna and the larger society in in which they live. Did they experience racism? There wasn't that much on how did they identify themselves in racial terms. So that became the subject of, of my book. And as part of that work, I became interested in how anthropologists had been interested in Garifuna and how they'd written about them. And... So I went down that rabbit hole to a degree. And then one Honduran historian um, named Dario Raque, a fantastic Honduran historian, in, in an article had mentioned that there was a African-American anthropologist who was originally slated to study the Garifuna in the early 1940s. And if he had done that study, he would have been the first, or at least among the first, anthropologists to work intensively with Garifuna. But he was denied permission to enter Honduras because of racist Honduran immigration law. That story in and of itself was interesting and reflected obviously something about Honduras, but I became curious. His his name was Hugh Smythe or Smith. I'm actually not sure how you pronounce his last name, S-M-Y-T-H-E. And I became interested in who was this person, what happened to them, and he turned out to have a really fascinating career. He, He was not able to study Garifuna in Honduras. He was a student of the famous uh, anthropologist Melville Herskovitz, uh, who was one of the kind of key anthropologists of the Afro-Americas, as well as Africa. And Smythe ended up having this fascinating career, kind of culminating in him being the U.S. ambassador to Syria in 1965. So I ended up delving into some of his archival papers, into the Herskovitz papers, and that kind of got me into just the history of anthropology and uh, especially in relationship to, to African-Americans. So on the one hand, that pushed me in this direction, I think. On the other hand, um, I taught a course called Race and Anthropology at UCSC, which I've taught off and on for many years now. I can't remember even the first time I taught it. And in that course, I had 
the first section of the course was a course around the Boazian intervention around race and racism, its critique of scientific racism, but also later critiques uh, in the 1970s, this article by William Willis, Skeletons in the Anthropological Closet, I had students read, and I had them debate the virtues and limitations, if you will, of the Boazian intervention. And when I originally assigned this material, I thought, oh, it's going to be really dull to the students, and they're just going to want to move on to the more contemporary engagements of um, anthropologists with race and racism. But it turns out they were actually quite fascinated, I think, by that history. And um, students will often, you know, approach historical works in a different kind of way than maybe professors do. So I kept kind of exploring some of that history, read more of the secondary material, and eventually ended up writing an article on Ruth Benedict's writings on race and racism. Benedict wrote a lot more about race than, I, than most people realize. She's famous for Patterns of Culture and Chrysanthemum of the Sword, but her other kind of major book was, was, was a book on race. And so the seeds of the kind of organization of this book were actually born out of that teaching because it kind of begins, it's really covering the period from the Boazian intervention, and particularly I pick it up in the 1920s and culminates in the early 70s at this critical moment in multiple senses um, in anthropology. So that's a slightly long-winded answer to the question, but it, it kind of emerged out of, yeah, just some things. It wasn't a direct line of descent from one project to another, but there were these sort of tangential connections between both. Right. You're working with the, the Garifuna, who identify both as Black and as Indigenous, and that kind of confounds the way that anthropologists talk about race and indigeneity. And so, you know, perhaps from there, you start to examine how anthropologists uh, talk about race, which means in the U.S. you talk about uh, Boaz. Now, From Boaz to Black Power is self-consciously about United States anthropology. And maybe just for folks that are that are not based in the U.S., what is the position of Boaz in the the imagination of the discipline of anthropology? That's a really good question. Um, so Boaz is kind of colloquially known, colloquially known as the father of anthropology. You know, that's obviously there were obviously anthropologists before him, and but he he looms large. Um, in a variety of different ways. I mean, on the one hand, he played a really important role in the restructuring of anthropology institutionally. His, prom his coming to prominence coincided in he with the full-on development of anthropology as an academic discipline. Um, and many of his students went on to become key figures in emerging departments like at UC Berkeley and, and other places. He also figures really large in the anthropological imagination because of his his anti-racism, his critique of scientific racism. He played his his legacy is really important to a lot of anthropologists um, for that reason. He was also instrumental in developing the contemporary anthropological understanding of of culture um, as it emerged in the 20th century. There are other ways in which Boaz was hugely influential, but those are the key ones I'd identify. Mm -hmm. I found it interesting reading it as an Australian where Boaz is not so large. He's kind of just like another anthropologist, like another early anthropologist, one of the, mm -hmm. rather than one of these kind of like key early figures. And um, in preparation for this interview, I was revisiting an article that I read by Gillian Cowleyshaw, who's a New Zealand anthropologist who researches among Indigenous Australians. 
And she was trying to, in the 90s, trying to talk about race uh, in Australia uh, and kind of like you're mapping out in the United States, like race was not really an analytic that anthropologists were prepared to use. And so she's written an article uh, that was eventually published, but it was denied publication in the United States. And then she wrote another article about the efforts to get that article published. And it's called, I think it's called Censoring Race. Mm-hmm. And she wrote about some of the, the comments, some of the reviewers' comments she, she'd read. Uh, and one of the comments was uh, that uh, she needed to go and read Boaz again because anthropologists don't talk about race. Uh, and I, not to kind of give away too much about what you're talking about in your book, uh, but I, I don't know, that really, really struck me uh, as being something similar to what you're talking about. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'd have a different, different interpretation of um, Boaz not talking about race. Um, I mean, I, I'm guessing what the argument there would be is that Boaz and, and his students, part of the their critique of racist scientific racism and racist ideology was that part of it was that the the really meaningful differences between human beings aren't to be found in their biology that is understanding race as a biological category of human difference but in their cultural differences um and so some folks have interpreted the move from that set of arguments to mean that race is just something we really shouldn't talk about or it uses an analytic that it's not a meaningful way to really categorize human differences and therefore is not the proper category for 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 social scientific analysis there's a counter perspective which is race though a social construct wasn't really a boazian argument per se but one that one can see develop out of the boazian legacy if you will that doesn't mean it's not doesn't have a social reality and doesn't that the world doesn't continue to classify people along the racial lines that inherited from from the colonial period and that therefore race remains a very salient not just topic but but analytical category um that needs to be wrestled with anyway that's a i i i I will now read that piece you're describing because it sounds fascinating yeah i'll send it through one of the things that you highlight early on is the way that Boaz uses a, an immigrant analogy uh, in terms of talking about race and also talking about the United States. Um, like, can you talk a little bit about what this analogy is and how it functioned in the anti-racist works of Boaz? Yeah, so sort of back up a little bit. One of the one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is explore how Boaz and Boazians, that's the short term for his students. They're, they're really well known for the, the critique of scientific racism for, um, for the, and the critique of biological determinism. And one of the things that interested, interests me in them is how did they think about what, we, what came to be called racism, but prejudice, discrimination, oppression, you know, based on racial differences, racialized forms of oppression, how did they understand that and how did they imagine their the transcendence or overcoming of we'll just call racial oppression? So one of the things that I try to explore in the book is when they're thinking about race and racial oppression in the United States, they're, I think they're modeling their imagination of the development of a more liberalized society in which individuals would be treated as individuals, because it's a very liberal project that the Boazians have in this sense. 
their implicit and occasionally explicit model for what that looks like is European immigrants who are understood to be assimilating into U.S. society. Just to go back to something you said before, though my earlier work was really focused a lot on transnationalism, diaspora, and how racial identities are created not just within local or national context, but, but also within transnational ones and through transnational encounters and interactions. And I have a real interest in, in how anthropology moves across borders and, and so forth. For this project, one of the things I realized was that Boazian anthropologists were really, they thought a lot about U.S. culture and they had a project of trying to intervene in U.S. society. It was a progressive liberal project. But when it came to really fully trying to confront racism in the United States, they're they're limited by this imagination of or modeling of the overcoming of racism, if you will, on the model of an assimilating European immigrant who's, of course, assimilating into whiteness, right, which is being reconstructed and reconfigured throughout the 20th century. But that when for those who are rendered beyond the boundary of whiteness beyond the pale of whiteness, if you will. This is something, it's a, there's something of a paradox in this effort to imagine what, say, anti-blackness and what it means and, and what it would mean to have black liberation when the model is the assimilation of European immigrants. Right. Yeah, this is one of the really striking things that you're talking about. Something that, that I definitely had no sense of in terms of Boaz's uh, anti-racism is this, these weird paradoxes that he gets himself into in that he kind of constructs the idea of the U.S. in terms of a liberal future of human freedom or of individual human freedom. And yet was very pessimistic about white people's capacity to think of people who, who aren't white as human. And relatedly, he's arguing constantly that that race is not a biological reality. And yet he's saying that a very you know biological form of mixing was the only way to, to overcome the issue of race in the United States. Like, could you synthesize like some of these paradoxes and how Boaz like grappled with them or if he did? Yeah, I mean, that that is the subject of the chapter two, I think it is on Boaz is trying to sort of both identify and, and try to explore the train of thought that leads to these paradoxical positions that, that he ends up taking. You know, as a qualifier, I wouldn't say necessarily that Boaz himself thought of or, or discussed race as a social construct per se. Right. But there is a, I mean, the way I frame it in the chapter is he has a article on U.S., African-Americans in 1921, and he ends it, it's called The Problem of the American Negro. And the, the last line of the article is, thus it would seem that man being what he is, the Negro problem will not disappear in America until the Negro blood has been so much diluted that will no longer be recognized, just as anti-Semitism will not disappear until the last vestige of the Jew as Jew has disappeared. Mm. There's a lot we can unpack in this sentence, but I would ha- highlight one of the ways it's deeply problematic. Mm. Boaz was suggesting that the long-term solution to anti-Black racism was the lightening of the Black population in the U.S. through interracial sex. What he's referring to when he's talking about the dilution of, of blood is he's, he's, he's saying that it is a pessimistic rendering of the racial situation in the United States where he sees, at least the way I interpret him, is he sees white racial consciousness as so kind of deeply pervasive in U.S. society and so deeply ingrained in individuals that until Blacks 
aren't recognizably different from whites phenotypically, it's hard for him to imagine a world in a U.S. world, I should say, in which whites treat blacks as individuals, right? But this is paradoxical in the sense that he does definitely see racial consciousness as a as a product of social and cultural learning and environment and as a social issue, right? Yet he ultimately proposes, as you say, a kind of biological solution. So that's one paradox, right? What I'm interested in in that chapter is sort of trying to figure out how does he get here? How does he get in this, what seems to me a real bind, right? And part of it has to do with his there's a, a liberal imagination of the overcoming of racism as people treat individuals as individuals. But if whites are enculturated not to do that, then at this point, he's not, he doesn't really, there's a, the obvious kind of mechanism as well, education and socialization into liberal individualizing attitudes. But he seems pessimistic about that as a, as a kind of realistic solution in part because of his understanding of the, of the force of culture. Right, of how important culture was in shaping individual thought and action. And he seems to largely reject the possibility of self-organizing among African-Americans as a, as a route towards political liberation. That may just exacerbate the problem, I think, in his view. So the point of the chapter isn't so much to create a scandal, one could go down that road, I suppose, but but to really figure out what's the sort of train of logic as a liberal thinker that leads him to this position and I actually find his pessimism quite sort of interesting in a way, analytically, because it could have led him to a full confrontation with the whiteness of America, the way in which, because part of the problem with the question of having liberalized individual relationships between people is what's the political unit through in which people are operating? What's the nation state? But how is the nation state imagined, right? And Boaz understands fully well, American nationality is largely rendered as white, right? And so he and other Boazians recognize there's a difference between people who can be classified and categorized into whiteness and those that can't, that there's a political difference in their positionality. But their imagination of, of the overcoming of racism because it's modeled on that assimilation of European immigrants, it, it can't deal with the color line, right? What Du Bois famously called the color line. That crucial radical difference between whiteness and non-whiteness, and particularly right. whiteness and anti-blackness and anti-Indianness in the sense of indigeneity in the U.S. There's, there's not an analytical frame that they have that seems to be able to sort of handle that, even though Boaz himself seems to be pointing towards this foundational problem of of whiteness in America in the construction of American nationality and national belonging. But that has to be reckoned with, to my mind, in any full confrontation with with racism. Right. This is kind of a like a follow-up, but also kind of a sidebar. Mm-hmm. Um, just as I was reading this, I was wondering uh, if you encountered kind of any indication that Boaz had been influenced by like the discourse of Mestizaje when he's making these arguments. Just like my knowledge of Mestizaje is, is localized to, to revolutionary Mexico, uh, but my understanding is it drew on a, a longer Latin American tradition uh, from independence movements like Simon Bolivar mm-hmm. and Jose Martí, um, but it was also affected by some intellectuals of the Mexican Revolution like Manuel Gamio, who studied a doctorate under Boaz and then came back to Mexico and wrote Forjando Patria, which really foregrounded the mixing of races as a, a biological and political project of national, national unity. 
I had always thought that, that that kind of idea had come from this long Latin American tradition and from Boaz, uh, and that's how it kind of got to Mexico. But I'm wondering to what extent some of these Latin American ideas went to the United States, like through people maybe like Manuel Camillo. Did you see any any indication of that kind of influence? Uh, yes, um, yes, and it's a uh, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a very pertinent question, and I think it's one of the other yeah elements to his thought that I think is actually key to helping understand it. You know, you could also mention Gilberto Freire, famous Brazilian scholar who was known for his promotion of, of mestizaje or the equivalent of it in, in, in Brazil. The Yes, I think Boaz, with, you know, part of the insight that what he refers to as racial consciousness is different across different social formations, I think, is informed by his understanding that in Latin American societies, racial consciousness is not as, it's not non-existent, but it's not as, I don't know the right word, um, pervasive or acute or, or categorical as it is in the United States. That is, there's intermediate categories between white and Indio or white and Negro. There's a fairly, I think, common perception in the early 20th century that uh, racial prejudice isn't as stark as it is in Latin America as in the United States. And so one of the ways in which I think Boaz is trying to understand that is, well, there's a greater history of, of intermixture and greater kind of recognition of intermixture in Latin American societies. And so the consciousness of race as a kind of the, the link between, say, blackness and a discrete social category isn't isn't the same in Latin America as it is in the United States. So this is definitely, I think, informing his his thought. There is a Latin Americanist, if you will, influence to to his thinking, and he's drawing on that fairly consistently in in the twenties and and thirties. And he sees a difference in in the U.S. And so he's he is a proponent of interracial marriage, both, I think, on the grounds of there's no biological reason to oppose it. Like the, the, biologically speaking, it's nonsense to imagine so-called racial mixing as being a problem. Uh, but also he sees, I think, looking to Latin America, a mixed society is having the advantage of not having social categories be directly tied to racial categories. Now, in giving this account, of um, perceptions of Latin America Boaz was drawing on, I don't want to endorse the notion that race is less problematic in Latin America than in the U.S. Um, there's been a lot of work, including my own, that, that contests that position. Right. So in the middle of the book, you note the the increasing presence of Marxian theory and anthropology through early figures like Ruth Benedict, but later through like Marvin Harris and Eric Wolf and so on. Uh, and Marvin Harris, like your, your discussion of Marvin Harris was particularly interesting to me because I only knew his like like truly bizarre work on like diets, ecologies, and religion. But his early work is about like race in Brazil and Latin America, and is actually like re like more sophisticated than I expected it would have been. But but over time, he starts to ignore the nuances. You note that he starts to ignore the nuances of his of his earlier work on race and, and takes his gradual turn into these kind of more full blown like materialist explanations of things. Like, like how do you position this gradual turn uh, toward materialist theories rather than like more nuanced uh, examinations of race? Yeah, well, he's a fascinating figure. Yeah, it's sort of a nice segue actually from 
from the last set of issues. Um, Cause I guess just to give a little bit of the backdrop for the audience, Harris becomes interested in race partially because he's part of a project. This is uh, from Columbia university where Boaz was also located and large measure this book is about Colombian anthropologists sort of that wasn't any attempt but it ended up being that way and there was a project on that was already underway in Brazil led by Charles Wagley but UNESCO uh, in the post-war era identified Brazil as a study that should be as a country that should be studied because it was viewed as a country with relatively mild racial conflict a country characterized by higher degrees of racial harmony. I would be putting these in quotes if, if, you know, if I could do the scare quotes visually. Harris studies race relations in, in a Brazilian town. And yeah, what I found fascinating about this early work was, to me, it, he develops a, a pretty nuanced ethnographic account, both of the nuances of a Brazilian racial classification system, which is quite different from the United States in a lot of ways, but also of discrimination and prejudice and, and the relationship between race and class, where the meaning of, in local terms of class categories, is inflected with racial meanings. And he's quite clear that can't be reduced race in this and kind of anti-blackness and, and the high valuation of whiteness inflect understandings of class, but can't just be reduced to them. Later, he develops a, a more comparative look of race in the Americas, driven by a political economic kind of Marxian approach. And I find this a really interesting moment and opportunity in anthropology, an anthropologist kind of moving on in a way from, from a Boazian leg legacy, really trying to think about racism in, in relationship to political economic structures. Yet it kind of, it ends up losing some of the subtlety of the insights of the earlier work and, and largely and, and really foregrounding class as the real issue in a lot of ways. It does make some really, I think, important and interesting comparisons between racial classification systems in the U.S. and the Brazil and Brazil, but ends up also, I think, minimizing racism in Brazil. Partially, I think, because there's imagination of segregation based on concrete and discrete categorical differentiation between people as the sort of maximal form of racial oppression, I think I call it. Mm. And, and kind of downplaying uh, the ways that racial oppression can occur in situations of relative fluidity in racial classification, that is, you still have anti-Blackness, you still have white supremacy taken in the sense of a high value placed on whiteness and, and social life and economic life. And that there's a kind of missed opportunity in this work in the 50s and, and 60s for a really nuanced, comparative, cross-cultural study of racism in the Americas. That there's, it's fascinating to read because there, there, there's a potential there that to me seems really exciting, but it gets short-circuited. And in some ways by pretty liberal understandings of what racial oppression really is. So on, on the topic of kind of like missed opportunities, yeah. like you know that um, that Harris seems like he's going one way and then kind of pulls it back and goes a different way and so kind of misses an opportunity to really kind of critically engage uh, with anthropology as a discipline. Uh, a big part of this book is the sixth chapter where 
you're noting the critical perspectives of, you know, black anthropologists and anthropologists of color, uh, you know, principally calling attention to the racial politics of the discipline in a bid to, to decolonize it. But then you note that, you know, Faye Harrison releases Decolonizing Anthropology in 91. Just last year, there's a book that's published, uh, a co-authored monograph called Decolonizing Ethnography. Like you're pointing out that these critical, these opportunities for a real like rigorous critique of the discipline, they kind of get a little bit sidelined. Can you, can you talk about what's happening in the, in the long 60s here and why these perspectives were maybe, uh, maybe neglected? Yeah. Yes, and thanks for this. Brings us to the sort of whole arc of the book, which is sort of aside from the conclusion, the real endpoint of the book is this period in the late '60s and '70s where there is some people call it the crisis in anthropology, some people call it a kind of radical turn, but there's a broader moment in the context of post-war II, World War II, kind of formal political decolonization, the civil rights movement, and then the Black Power movement in the United States, and then of course Red Power and Chicano Power and you know, things are happening in Mexico at this time. And even more broadly, um, in academia, there are a lot of critical issues and questions being raised about what is the academy, you know, in anthropology, what is anthropology for? Who's it serving? What does it do for the people who anthropologists study? And within that context, there's also the emergence of still not large numbers, but larger numbers of anthropologists of color who in the moment of the rise of, of Black studies and efforts to reimagine the university, organize and have interventions in the AAA and are engaged in a kind of collective movement to, to rethink anthropology. And so this chapter is about, basically, I focus on three figures who wrote kind of critical and perspective essays about anthropology. One is William Willis, Skeletons in the Anthropological Closet, um, Diane Lewis, Anthropology and Colonialism, and um, both those authors are, Af- are scholars are African American, and uh, Charles Valentine, who's white, who wrote writes a book called Black Studies in Anthropology, exploring the relationship between anthropology and the the field of Black Studies, which had really taken off as an academic field in the late '60s and early '70s, mm. and they engage in a whole host of um, you know sort of representatives. I, I see them as kind of representatives of of a larger set of struggles going on at the time in which anthropology is being politicized in a very self-conscious way, uh, in which the traditional kind of parameters of what anthropologists could be studying and who should be studying what is being questioned. The term native anthropology gets coined by Delmos Jones at this time. Um, at least that's my sense of the coinage. There's a, there's a development of a critique of the culture concept as a or the ways the culture concept can be used to essentialize in ways that, that are analogous to forms of racial essentialism. That critique is really first voiced, I think, or not first voiced, but developed in, in this period to a degree that I think is on kind of often not understood by later generations of anthropologists. I could go on and on, right? The, this, there's a whole host of interventions that, um, that are made. And then part of it is also a re-examination of the history of anthropology. And Willis de- develops critical insights into the Boazian intervention. And, and part of it's being also inspired by critiques of liberalism and particularly white liberalism that are really pervasive within Black power movements and with, within Black studies. So the whole 
role of the academy in the production of racist social formations is is being questioned. And so for me, this is the kind of first decolonizing moment in anthropology. And it's very interesting that we're now, you know, basically 50 years on from that moment. And there's a continual need for a call to decolonize anthropology, you know, in successive generations, right? And and I think like Faye Harrison is very much aware of and cites the work of folks we're doing in the early 1970s, you know, writes about it in the introduction. But some of these figures haven't got the recognition I think they they deserve. In the conclusion, I highlight that. It is, I think, interesting question to reflect on was why is there this sort of continual need for a call for a for the decolonization of anthropology? What does that tell us about anthropology? You know, there are battles in anthropology initiated in that era that that continue to persist. All right. So thinking about the, the book as a whole, like your, your book is critiquing like Boaz and Boazians kind of like within their time uh, rather than outside of their context. So you're not, this is why you've got this kind of focus on uh, like missed opportunities and so on. So you're not like letting the fact that these folks were, you know, maybe more progressive than their contemporaries, like inure them from critique, but you're also not just juxtaposing Boazian anti-racism with contemporary anti-racism. Can you talk about how you approached writing history here? Yeah. And, and I would like to hope that's what I'm doing. I, I think other, there may be some readers who disagree with that assessment, Lachman, but yeah, I think it's, you know, any, any time you write, you know, all history at some level is presentist, right? You're, you're motivated by contemporary concerns. So, and I, and I, it would be, I think, sort of foolish to deny that, but I do try to, yeah, the question of then how do you contextualize the Boazian intervention? which I think it's really important to emphasize. I, mean, I do describe it as anti-racist. I think mm-hmm. I don't want to minimize its importance in the earlier chapters. I mean, one way to make the juxt- to make a juxtaposition is, you know, I-, I talk about this 1924 immigration law that's being promoted by a set of scholars, some might say quasi-scholars in some cases, but using the science of eugenics and drawing on, you know, scientific paradigms and language to to advocate for highly racialized forms of immigration restriction. And Boazians were opposed to that, right? Um, and and publicly engaged in a project of, of contesting that, right? Mm. At the same time, you know, a large drift of the book is trying to pinpoint contradictions, paradoxes, limitations of the Boazian intervention that I think the critique I develop is enabled in part by whiteness literature that's developed later or other critical race race theory that's developed later and and so forth. I don't, but I don't think that exempts me from trying to develop those insights on, on earlier work. And at the same time, I don't think it's sufficient to just say, well, Boazians are writing in a time of entrenched, overt white supremacist discourse and language and that's the context we have to understand them. And that is the context we have to understand them. But there's also intellectual context that we might, that we can compare them to, right? And other thinkers who are contemporary, right? There are Marxist forms of critiques of racism being developed at the time. There are, the route I take is at different moments, um, I compare elements of what a Boazian thought to 
certain African-American intellectuals, whether it's St. Clair Drake or Oliver Cox, um, who's comment, who comments on Ruth Benedict's work, or Elaine Locke and his relationship with Melville Herskovitz, which could, could be a much longer subject. But to point out ways in which um, African-American intellectuals were, there are other anti-racist kinds of, of forms of thought that that in different ways I see as highlighting different possibilities of thought than, than the Boasians themselves necessarily pursued. So that's one of the ways in which I try to, I'm not satisfied with just a position that's um, comparing them to the proponents of scientific racism, for example. But that doesn't, we can hold these two things together, I think, right? Recognize the importance of the critique of scientific racism and highlight paradoxes and limitations and the ways in which they're, you know, they are really key to the making of a liberal anti-racist imagination, which I think is, needs to be put under critical scrutiny, right? Because that's part of the legacy that, that's been in, in, inherited, um, both within anthropology, but, but more broadly within the U.S. The whole colorblind discourse is sort of obvious place to, to go, right? I think it's more and more recognized that's utterly inadequate to confronting, you know, racism, whether we're talking about, you know, in the 20th century or, or today. So some people might read this book and say, uh, you know, what about the, the close relationship between the Harlem Renaissance and Columbia anthropology? Or what about the fact William Willis, you know, really held Franz Boas in high esteem? Like, how do you respond to this? Um, true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. I mean, um, and I try to point some of those connections and relationships out. Mm. There were many black intellectuals um, who saw the Boazians as allies um, and, and drew on particularly their critiques of scientific racism and their sort of authority as scientific experts on race to, in certain ways. At the same time, it doesn't mean that Du Bois or Boaz, just to take two examples, thought about race and racism in the same ways or produce the same intellectual imagination. Again, these two things could be sort of true at the same time. Black intellectuals certainly could appreciate the Boazian tradition, but it doesn't mean they just, that was it, right? <laughs> that, that there were developing more kind of radical insights about, say, structural racism, which I think a hallmark of, of a lot of Black intellectual thought in the 20th century, whether it's called that or not. Yeah, Willis was deeply appreciative of Boaz, and he also critiqued Boaz, Right. Um, and and I think he, even by his own account, he, the more he learned about Boaz, the more he appreciated him. But I don't think that negates some of the critical insights he had in his essays in Skeleton around um, the Boazian intervention. Right. And throughout the book, yeah, you're noting a, a bunch of, you know, different anti-racisms that, that the discipline of anthropology might have been able to take. Uh, and yet they, these various these various ideas uh, were neglected for various reasons. Um, but I just want to kind of like maybe visit a couple of these these scholars. And like you can just say like St. Clair Drake, Oliver Cox, Elaine Locke, uh, William Willis, like folks that are not necessarily like part of the canon in anthropology, maybe just for folks that are really interested in kind of pursuing you know, what this anti-racism is and what, what it might look like now. Like, uh, could you maybe just mention a couple of works by some of these scholars? Yeah. So, um, and I think of the ones you mentioned, the actual Drake is an anthropologist. Locke was not, though he engaged anthropology a lot. Oliver Cox was a sociologist, but anthropologists should be reading people besides anthropologists too, for that matter. So all these folks would, you know, are folks that, 
you know, but maybe I just stick with Drake because, and just as a sort of side note, Drake was the advisor of Ted Gordon, my advisor. So in some way, he's my grand advisor, if you will, <laughs> who is really fascinating figure. He's He's gotten some more attention recently, particularly for his work around the African diaspora, because he was really, uh, he studied, he did his dissertation at the University of Chicago uh, on the UK and a uh, black community in, in the UK. He worked in Ghana um, in, in the 60s. He did civil rights work. His study of Chicago, Black Metropolis with Horace Caton, I read a little bit about in the book, is is recognized classic as later works. You know, one thing I'd point people towards if you can find it is a, my one, one regret from the book is um, he wrote an essay uh, or, or delivered a series of lectures that he, that he published in 1963 on African-Americans and the American dream at the 100th year anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And it's a series of historical reflections on the United States and the struggle for African-Americans to be part of the American dream. He describes himself, I think, in the end as a kind of ambivalent liberal. Mm. And, and later in the 70s, Drake kind of identified himself as a, as a Marxist. And I think he'd always had Marxist inclinations or, or Marxian thought influenced his, 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 his approaches. But... Anyway, it's a, it's a really interesting set of reflections, both on the history of the United States and a kind of dialectical understanding of African-American struggles to participate in the American dream. But it, when it gets to the end, it's, it's, and he's reflecting on integration, and this is at the moment of sort of at the cusp of the emergence of black power in some ways, you can really see that ambivalence about, um, well, what, what does integration mean? What does that look like? What, because part of, you know, insofar as the liberal imagination, integration involved assimilation, that creates all sorts of conundrums and paradoxes. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of losing the thread here. But um, one of the things I've been interested in thinking about is comparing that work to um, work published in the late 17s by John Langston Gwaltney called Dry Longso. It's called A Self-Portrait of Black America. It's kind of a... Mm-hmm experimental ethnography where the author who was African-American who had studied under Margaret Mead, interestingly, um, does a series of interviews with African-Americans and he largely just presents the interviews. I mean, he categorizes them, gives short little introductions to them, but it's, it's a sort of presentation of African-American voices. And in the first section, the critiques of kind of America and the flag and and just being black in the United States are really powerful and they're so contemporary, right? Um, thinking about what's going on today, so that's another figure that I he I don't talk about in the book. It sort of tra- comes after the period where the book ends um, that I'd point folks towards as well, as well as you know, there's so much important contemporary work from black anthropologists that I couldn't even begin to enumerate. Um, and so what's next for you? Like now that you finished this project, do you have another one on the burner? Uh, nothing on a burner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> burner's off. No, what's one of the things I realized in writing this book when it was too late was that somebody really needs to write the history of what the hell happened in anthropology 
in the late 60s and early 70s. And it's probably not the work any one person can can take on. But, but you know, it, I would have loved to have that book, right, when writing this one. And I don't pretend my chapter six is does that job. It, it, it begins to get at some slices of the importance of that moment. But I don't think that's something I'm going to take on myself. We'll see. But at this point, I sort of felt like I had a story to tell about this subject between the 20s and early 70s, and and I'll you know leave it alone. Um, I'm what I'm actually thinking about um, is doing some kind of ethnography around private property, which is a kind of another shift that's only that's that's I can make connections between both this project and my earlier project, where you know. For Garifuna, land rights struggles, you know, have been one of, if not the key political issue, um, you know, since I started work there in the in the early 90s, um, questions of collective rights versus individual rights when it comes to property and even the whole framework of property is um, kind of under, under critique from uh, indigenous ontological perspectives. All those kinds of things resonate with my earlier work, but... Um, my interest really came out of, as you know, in Santa Cruz, there was a um, big struggle over rent control that my sense of time now, which I think was just last year, right? or maybe right? or maybe it was two years ago, when there were efforts to get rent control passed in the city of Santa Cruz that, that ultimately failed. And just talking to people in town about rent made me really interested in, or rent control made me really interested in the kinds of attachments people have to certain ideals of private property. So I'm, any any discussion, any analysis of property um, has to also, you know, is is indebtedly tied up with questions of race. And so I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this, but that's, I'm kind of thinking of doing a different kind of ethnographic project. And it could even bring me back to Honduras, um, but I'm just really not sure at this point. No, this sounds like a great project. Um, yeah, as a person who lived in Santa Cruz for three years, I'll say that if you can do something about that rental market, uh, we'll all love you forever. <laughs> but until then, uh, I just want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book and it was great to be able to chat with you about it. Oh, thank you so much for the, for the opportunity. Uh, it, it was fun. <laughs>